Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 88. And whether this is your first time joining us or your 88th, I am so grateful that you are here to have time together to listen and to learn from our amazing fellow Asian Americans and to learn about all the different ways that we are living our unique and amazing Asian American lives. Today's guest is an amazing uh, human being, a friend of mine, who after playing golf at the high level, um, playing, or I guess working in finance and at a large startup, has decided to venture off on her own and to create a thing um, that she wanted in her life and that her friends want and she knows that the market wants. Uh, Jane Dong of Frankly Apparel joins us today. Uh, before we get to Jane's episode, I want to share with you, um, if you're listening to this on Wednesday um, or when the episode is aired, um, there's still time left to get your podcast in, if you have a podcast, uh, to nominate yourself for the very first ever Asian Podcast Awards. We are very excited to host the awards here at Just Like Media and the Asian Podcast Network to celebrate the excellence that is Asian podcasting globally. We'll be giving out awards in 14 categories, anywhere from the best career podcast to the best interview, the best social media presence, and of course, podcast of the year. Even though the Asian Americans is not eligible to win, because it's my show, um, we encourage everybody else. Um, as of today, we have over 40 entrants. Um, the show, the award show, will be happening live on December 27th at 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be continuing to talk about the show throughout the rest of the month and on our social media. So I encourage you, if you're a podcaster, head over to AsianPodcastAwards.com, get your nominations in. And if you want to help us celebrating, if you want to join us in celebrating the amazing Asian podcasters that make storytelling so fun and so worthwhile, I encourage you to join us on the 27th. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Jane. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And whenever you are listening to us from wherever, uh, as we always do on this show to start us off, we wish you all the health and safety in the world. And we wish you happiness. 2020 has been a challenging year. 2020 has been a year uh, that has been full of really unfortunate things that many of us had to realize. But the silver lining through it all, and then not to make light of anything that's happened from a negative perspective, is that it's really given us, a lot of us, a chance to redefine what life means and redefine what we want to do with the opportunities that have been given to us. And we often talk about, and we hear a lot on the news, just about students who are graduating and the impact that 2020 has on their employment uh, prospects coming out of school. And for whatever it's worth, it's been really inspiring to see so many people graduating in 2020 choose their own path and not the prescribed path, no matter what their backgrounds are, to really do something that brings purpose and passion and profits into one conversation to really do what they want to do. And so my guest today has done just that. Uh, she's a recent graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and along with her co-founder, has started a brand new way to think about women's apparel and women's clothing called Frankly Apparel, and coming off just a very wonderful, amazing, and successful Kickstarter campaign where they actually more than 2 x their goal. Going to learn all about how a Chinese American woman became a collegiate golfer turned banker and now apparel startup founder. So welcome Jane Dong to the show. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Um, before we get into learning more about you, uh, congratulations on your launch. It was really great to see the community get really activated and get really 
uh, both on the Asian American side, as we saw it in a lot of the Facebook groups that you and I belong to together, and just across the board, um, the support of other women who are just, you know, holy crap. And it's one of these things that, from at least from the outsider perspective, you don't know you needed it until you saw it. And so how, how's that part been? Like, are you guys, um, tell us a little bit about where Frank Lee is right now in the business. Yeah, so right now, after the Kickstarters ended, um, basically we're trying to figure out, you know, what size everybody wants, what color everyone wants, and then in January we'll start manufacturing um, and making sure that we make like basically the right amounts, and then like also a little extra for exchanges or returns, like just in case something mm. happens. Um, and then we are planning on fully launching in March. Um, I think in terms of like my reaction and also my co-founder's reaction, you know, I've been very floored by the support that we've gotten, like, as you said, from a lot of like fellow Asian American founders, um, just like friends in general. And a lot of ways, this is a relief for Heather and I, because um, my co-founder, because when we thought about this, we were like, okay, like this kind of a go, no go moment. Like if we can't even get to our goal in 30 days, like we should probably like, you know, fulfill and like probably go find jobs. But like, thankfully we were like fully funded the first five hours and we're like, okay, thank God. Like, you know, we have a little bit more time. And so like, it's like kind of cool that you're catching me during this time because it's like, okay, I'm a little bit relieved, but now I'm like, okay, there's actually a future for this. And like, we need to keep going and I'm really excited, but also like, you know, definitely feel some of the pressure for that. Yeah. Sure. And, and, you know, I'm excited for this conversation because though we're not an entrepreneurship focused podcast, a lot of the people that we talk to are obviously people who are, um, have decided to chart their own path. And so, you know, one of the most popular podcasts in the world is how I built this, which is usually sort of a, a retrospective look. And today I hope we get a little bit flavor of how I'm building this because you're still building it. And so, um, in the moment stories, I think are more, a lot more fun. Um, no, no shade to the people who've been uberly successful, but no pun intended, I think, cause you used to work there as well. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you reach a certain level of traditional success, you lose a little bit of the memory, the pain, because that's what it's supposed to do, right? You, we, we tend to have a little bit more fonder memories of the struggle uh, once we've reached, you know, some level of comfort. So let, let's roll the clock back a little bit and share with us about how your family uh, became Asian American. When was that and to where? And share with us a little bit more about your earlier years of Jane's life. Yeah, sure. Um, so my dad and mom are both from Fujian province, which is a southeast province of China. Um, and my dad came first, he came in, I think like 87 or 88. Um, and so, you know, he had like kind of heard like, oh, you have an opportunity at a better life. Like, why don't you go and like get education there? Like, and he like showed up and was like, okay, I'm going to do computer science, et cetera. Um, and you know, he actually had a really funny story because he couldn't really speak English and he would kept failing. I think it was the TOEFL. He like failed it a bunch of times. And like, they were like, basically like, okay, if you don't either pass this or like figure out a like exemption, like you're going to get kicked out of this country. Um, and so he basically made a script um, and showed up to a Cal State LA professor's office and like recited this script and <laughs> like had no idea what the professor was saying in response, just kind of like nodded and said yes and no when he thought it was appropriate. And like the guy signed off his like, you know, his like exemption paper and was like, okay, you can stay and like enroll in this master's program. And so that's basically how he was able to stay. And so while he was there, he worked like three jobs. He was like a pizza delivery boy. I think he was doing embroidery or something like that also um, while he was down there. And he had like a third job that I'm not really sure what it was. Um, but he is kind of like, if you think about it, like, you know, the immigrant who like showed up and literally like didn't have any money, didn't know how to drive, didn't know how to do anything. Um, and like really just like now is like a software engineer. 
Um, and my mom was a journalist in China. And so that was like apparently very unusual back in the day because like pretty male dominated industry. She was like an English major in college. And she in some ways followed my dad here and started out, I believe in, I think accounting and just found it so like, unfortunately mind numbing that she was like, okay, I can't do this either. And so she like also did a comp sci degree, um, but she did it while I was a kid. So while I was like between like three and five was when she did that. Um, and so, yeah, both of them are engineers and I grew up in Fremont, California. Mm. Um, so very Asian neighborhood, you know, like my parents always had a strong emphasis on education, but I will say they were like chiller than I think a lot of the other Asian parents, like, <laughs> you know, they're like, yeah, like, you know, go do activities, all these things. They really try to keep me busy also outside of school. Um, they had a very strong perspective on not skipping grades and like staying where you were because both of them had skipped huh. two grades. And so they were like, we don't want you to have that experience. We don't care, like, you know, if your teacher says you're gifted, like, you're staying exactly where you are. We're just going to try and entertain you in, like, mm. every other way. And so I played piano. I did, like, you know, traditional Chinese dance. I went to Chinese school. Like, I did swimming. Like, basically, I did ice skating. Like, any activity you can possibly think of, I got thrown into. Um, and that was kind of, like, their strategy to, like, entertain me um, as a kid. And... I actually started playing golf because there was this thing called the wildcat run in elementary school. It was whoever could run the most laps in 30 minutes. And it was like a completely bizarre thing. But um, <laughs> when I think about like what it was, I was like, so you like ran past and they'd like stamp you. Like, you know, you'd wear a white t-shirt and they'd like stamp you and they'd like count the stamps at the end. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to win this. I'm not that fast of a runner. Like they had a list of prizes. The number one thing was like a golf camp. And my dad's like, that's worth money. You have to put that as number one. And I was like, fine. I really want the, you know, the webcam. Cause this is like, you know, like the like late nineties slash early two thousands and webcams were really cool. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> and so I put that, I was like, I'm probably gonna get like third or fourth here. And I actually won this golf thing. And I was like, this is the worst thing ever. Like I should have ran a little slower. Like this is so dumb. Like, and so I got like shipped to this like golf camp, like at like a local golf course. And I hated it. I was like, this is for old people. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And then like, it kind of like died off for a little bit. And then my dad found out that like, you know, you could get college scholarships and like ding, ding, ding. Like for him, he's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, she might be able to go for free. Like, you know, there's all these possibilities. <laughs> and so then he just kind of saw that and he was like, okay, like, you know, do you want to be a mediocre volleyball player or do you want to like be a good golfer? Like, and I was like, <laughs> oh, obviously when you ask it like that, no, I don't want to be an okay, like volleyball player who like warms the bench. Like, okay, like I'll try this golf thing. And it just like kind of started from there. And like, he got, he was like pretty smart, honestly. Like my dad's like a smart dude. He got my like childhood best friend to play. And so like, I wanted to go golf cause like my best friend was there. And so it was like fun. And so it made it a lot better. And then we started entering tournaments and you know, I started really late, like seriously. And so I was like the worst, like I was like dead last, like in the 15 to 17 division for a very long time. Um, but then like, once we had decided, okay, this is our goal. Um, I practiced really hard and like, you know, did all these things and like, you know, basically like very much minimized my like high school social life and like got good enough to be recruited in about like a year and a half. Um, and so, like, you know, going from like finishing dead last, like just like a year and a half to two ago to like being able to like finish well in national tournaments, like not even really compete in local tournaments anymore was like a big change for me. Um, but yeah, like I think that part was like a probably pretty big part of like my formative years if I really think about it. How did you balance 
academic pursuits with athletic pursuits, getting good enough at golf to be recruited by D1 programs. Did you ever entertain the idea of turning pro or making golf your, your main jam? Yeah, I actually did. So I was recruited by a bunch of different schools. Um, you know, I was recruited by like UT, Cal, Davis, and then like Columbia, like Purdue, like, you know, also like some random schools also. Um, I entertained it because I was like, okay, I got so good quickly. I'm not great. Like, let's just be very clear. I was like recruited based on potential, like, and like the story, you know, like I was like, I was still not a very good golfer in my mind. I was like, good enough to like play on a team. But like, I was like, it was like, I was being recruited based on like what I could be. And so I was like, okay, like if I really want to pursue this, I am going to have to like, you know, pick a school that where it's warm. Like Columbia is not really a, like a golf school. Right. And I decided to like pull up that week's like golf week and look at the earnings of the like women golfers. And I think at that time the LPG was having a ton of issues getting sponsors and like, you know, the earnings were just not great. There were like less tournaments and like, there's all these things. And like, you know, I remembered playing in like us open qualifiers with these like women who were like, I Googled them and they're like number one on their college team in like Oh six. And it was like 2009 at that point or whatever. And I basically got really freaked out because I was like, I am not good enough to make money on this tour. Like even like the top 30 people, like, they're like making decent money, but like you right. gotta take out caddy fees, you gotta take out travel fees, like all these things. I was like, I'm just not gonna cut it. Like I was like, no matter how hard I try, like you know, like these people were number one on their college team. Like if I went to like a Cal or a Davis, I'd be lucky to make the starting team. Right. And so I was like, this isn't gonna make sense for me economically. And so, you know, I think for me, it was like a very conscious decision. I was like, I'm gonna go to the best school that I can, and mm-hmm. that was Columbia. And so that was like basically like the big decision for me was like, you know, it's. Like it's, I've basically like not really given that much thought to like, you know, professional play after I was like, I'm going to Columbia. I'm going to be a student first. I'm tired of like, basically like doing bio homework at like, you know, midnight or whatever it is. And I just like (laughs) want to make sure that like I'm a student first. Like little did I know by choosing Columbia, I was signing up to do more homework at like 2am, but like basically I was like, oh, this will be great. I'm a student first. I'm an athlete second and I'll get like more of the balance that I want. That's very cool. Cause I I think. You know, golf is an interesting sport because it's not one of the binary sports. And what I mean by that is for a lot of folks who pursue basketball, football, baseball, they're on a very singular track and it's sports first, academic second. And it's with the very intentional goal of making it to the pros or bust, right? And so um, we see a lot of that. And I think even just in the stories that you've shared, you know, there's disparity of pay in women's sports, right? And we, we can... You know, is it fair? Is it economics at play? Is it supply and demand? It's, it's, it's not a simple answer, but kudos to you for like going through that entire um, process of a very mature 17 year old or 18 year old getting, doing that analysis and then making your college decision based on that. Cause somebody else might've said, why would I go to a city to go play golf or, you know, I might want to go to Texas where it's warmer or whatever it may have been um, or, or stay close because Davis was probably the closest school and it's, you know, or Cal even, right? Like still a great school and a great golf team as well. Cool. And, and how did you balance that when you when you got to school, knowing that golf was still a priority? You, you played on the team there. But what did, what did you want to do? Um, was it still, I guess, three things like one, was it golf related that you wanted to pursue or was it? what you're doing now, which is something in the apparel and the lifestyle part, was that always in you? Or was it, hey, I'm, I'm here and I'm going to make the best out of the opportunity that I have to be a graduate of Columbia? 
here, I gotta say that, like, me being in apparel is, like, the farthest, farthest thing that I could have, like, ever imagined. Like, if you asked me, you know, like, when I was, like, 18 or even, like, maybe, like, three years ago, would you be doing something in apparel? I'd be like, no way. Zero shot. Um, because it's, like, it's, I, like, like clothes. It's never been a passion of mine until, like, I really, like, got, like, you know, caught onto this idea with my co-founder. Um, but, yeah, I always thought of myself more as, like, a tech, like, software person. Like, growing up in the Valley, like, that's kind of how I thought of it. But, like, while I was at Columbia, actually, this is also even a bigger departure from where I thought I would be. So while I was at Columbia, um, the competitive thing to do at that point was investment banking. Um, I remember very clearly that there was a dude on my floor who was like, oh, you're looking at investment banking? Like, are you sure you want to go, like, you know, you'd be in the big boys league? And I was like, I don't know what to say to you. And I was like, you know what? All I can do is, like, show you by getting a job. I I think I was just, like, flabbergasted. (laughs) I didn't even have a response to him. Um, but yeah, I was like, how am I to get there? And so I actually worked at an activist hedge fund my freshman summer. Uh, huh. the way I ended up there was I actually cold called and emailed like a million hedge funds. And now I know how hedge fund recruiting works. Everything goes through headhunters. Like it was a completely insane thing to do. Um, but it did work. I will say, because I found a fund that literally had just started in February and I emailed it like January. And so this dude, like, you know, calls me. It was actually, he actually ended up writing my Stanford rec um, down the line. But he called me. He goes like, hey, like, you know, you're a freshman in college. Do you know any accounting? And I'm like, nope. And he's like, do you know any finance? I was like, nope. And then he's like, you know, you're the, the only thing you're qualified to do is bring me coffee. And I think I said something along the lines of, yeah, I can bring you coffee. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, as long as you get me something here. Because um, I was like, I need to get to banking. That's where I need to go. Like, it's supposed to be the holy grail. I didn't even like care about anything else. And so like, you know, he took a chance on me, he hired me. And he was like, look, I really like you. You could like, actually like be a great activist investor, which now in hindsight, I'm like, I don't know if I would be actually because my heart rate goes up when like stock prices go down. So I don't know. But basically, like I ended up there and then like, went to banking, did banking again. And so like, I was very finance focused. I was like, I'm going to be a private equity partner by the time I'm 40. And so, you know, my first departure from that was like very painful. Cause like, you know, I've always been a planner. I was like, I want to know what my life is going to be. And I was like, and then I showed up to like the job and I was like, Oh my God, this is not it. This is really not it. Um, and so, yes, I think that was like really interesting. Cause yeah, at Columbia, I was like very focused on one thing. I was like, I'm getting my banking job. I want to be a good teammate to all my teammates for these four years. And like, I actually had a like pretty rough, like probably first year on the team. Um, We unfortunately had like an upperclassman who wasn't the kindest and like kind of bullied freshmen generally. And so Mm. I had like seriously considered quitting my freshman year. I remember having that conversation with my dad and he was like, you know what, like she's going to be gone soon. It's going to be fine. And so, yeah. So like I ended up staying because I got like talked back into it by like a lot of people in my life. Um, and it ended up being okay. And like, you know, they were all like, it'll be fine. Like, you know, if she can find out the freshman, like, you're not going to be a freshman anymore. It's going to be okay. Um, and so I ended up staying, but yeah, like, you know, the Columbia part was like, I just wanted to like be a good teammate and like get the job I wanted. And also like, you know, there's a whole other aspect of it. That was like the women's business society was a big part of my life when I was at Columbia. Um, and so, you know, making sure that like, nobody talked to other women the way that dude talked to me um, was something that was like very top of mind for me. Coming off of that though, you, and then not to completely move away from your, your college experience, but you worked in environments both in banking, who is, who, whose reputation is a very bro-y, fratty culture where a lot of things are either forgiven, overlooked, or expected to 
not be made a big deal when it comes to sort of the negative culture and going on to Uber. And we've read a lot about their culture there as well. And so how did you, what did you learn from those early experiences of being treated as other being, you know, a woman and a woman of color in those situations where, you know, you got the stuff because you are there and you deserve to be there. But, you know, uh, whether it was, you know, you know, was there introspection from that perspective of, was it always the, I'm going to prove you wrong? Or was there always, you know, what was that process like? Because I think if you read your resume, you've excelled in areas where it is extra hard for a woman of color, which is an unfortunate thing to say, but it is the situation of those certain industries and organizations where, you know, there, there's a dominant culture that unfortunately bullies and gets away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think honestly, part of this goes back to the golf thing because, you know, golf is very white. It's very male. Um, and like, you know, even early on there, like there were some experiences that kind of taught me like, you know, you are other like, so, you know, I'm not going to say which school I went on a couple of recruiting trips, but while I was in the bathroom, someone went ching, ching, chong, chong at, do you think the Chinese recruit understands me? And I'm like, okay, first of all, you know, I speak perfect English. Like second of all, like I'm in the bathroom. This is not that soundproof. And I came out and like, I just remember being so angry. And I was like, you know, was that guy making fun of like Asians and like, no one would make eye contact with me. And, like, there was, like, definitely, like, they're, like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is, like, really bad. Um, And so I think there was, like, you know, even earlier than, like, probably, like, the actual job, like, just because, like, golf is, like, you know, at least women's golf is a little bit better. But, like, just generally golf is so white and so male that I was, like, oh, my God, like, you know, there's, like, everybody's aware, even if they're not saying it to me, like, to my face. And even if they're too scared to say it to my face, they're thinking it. And so, you know. I just, I've always had a really hard time with this, honestly, because it's like, I've always wanted to stand up for myself more. And I like, I think I've generally done a pretty good job of like being like, Hey, you know, like actually it's not because of like, you know, them being a woman that they're not good at X, Y, Z. Um, you know, like, I think like I've been okay with that. Um, maybe because honestly, like the golf kind of trained me on some level, um, to deal with it. Like, and so, yeah. So I think like, in terms of the banking part, I think like there are obviously things that people said to me, said to other women that like, you know, they definitely shouldn't be able to get away with. Um, I think everybody is having a reckoning and like has gotten a lot better about like, you know, that is inappropriate to say to a woman or like it is inappropriate to stare at somebody like that. Like, you know, as I walk past your office, like, you know, and like, you know, on some level, like I also had great allies. Like I made like some of my best friends in banking and like they affirm, they're like, you are not crazy. Like we noticed this one like VP who (laughs) stares at you really creepily every time you walk by. And so like, you know, there are all those like that aspect of it. And like, you know, I think I was very conscious, like, you know, there's not really any like Asian female partners, like, Female partners right. are kind of like unicorns in general, but like, you know, Asian American, like Asian, like I haven't really seen any. And I think at Uber, I got a little bit lucky because the New York office was actually like really great for me. Um, I actually mm. had a female manager. She is still very supportive. She's my mentor now. Um, and I think a lot of the like the really painful stuff like might have come from engineering, not saying like we didn't have issues um, in our New York office. But I felt like there was a lot of actually female support there. I will say, I think the tech industry, like, you know, seeing Uber and seeing just generally speaking, like 
the bamboo ceiling is very real. And also like the way that people perceive Asian Americans is very like not fair. Um, in some ways, like I think the reason why I've gotten around some of like the like normal stereotypes is because like I can like, you know, like perform or like, you know, be a little louder if I have to be. Right. Um, and I can like kind of like, you know, walk that line pretty well. And I think that's something that I've like probably learned over the years of like, you know, I'm not your stereotype, but I'm competent and I try to project competence. Like, you know, I unfortunately have seen like other like Asian women who interviewed for the same role as I have people being like, oh, she's not technical enough. I was like, why would you say she's not technical enough? She had exactly my background. And they're like, oh, well, actually, I just don't know if they're a culture fit. And I'd be like, I don't know what that means. You know, like, what does that mean? Like, I'm here. Like, why is this person who has, like, but literally the same a, background as me, like, not It's such fit. a cop-out to go to the subjective culture fit, right? Like, because we've seen yeah. that a lot, right? Where... Oh, yeah. I mean, and, like, you know, quick sidestep, like, everything we're talking about, if you've been treated this way or whatnot, it's not a reflection on you. It's 100% reflection on the other person. So please don't ever think that there's something or anything wrong with you. It's the other person's inability to value you for who you are or their lack of education and how to deal with and engage with people that don't look like them. That's literally the issue. And your presence, whether on the golf course or in a boardroom, makes them uncomfortable because something in their mind, the way that they see the world, we don't fit. I, I am a loud vocal as Asian American dude. So while I can code switch and, you know, laugh at the jokes and like do what it makes, you know, what it requires for me to fit in, quote unquote, it's not authentically me. And I think, you know, people sometimes forget that because we are capable of operating, um, especially on the, you know, the more corporate side of things as, as we all have been in. There's a way that we act when we're the most comfortable with our parents or at home with loved ones and the version that we are at work or, you know, uh, at school or, or sometimes not all, and I'm not saying that we're trying to be somebody we're not, but those are learned traits, right? Like we, we have learned to be a certain way, speak a certain way, or more importantly, not be a certain way and not say certain things, um, because we've been conditioned. And, and I hope, as you mentioned that, you know, with 2020, with all that's going on there, that there is a, a long, long awaited and um, long affecting reckoning um, to make sure that people uh, do feel comfortable, right? Like you mentioned something that is critically important, not just in banking, but in a lot of industries, which is there's a lot of us at the lower levels, but there's not enough of us at the top levels. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think um, you opted out, I opted out. And so many of us choose to go down their own paths in entrepreneurship and otherwise, partially because we don't see opportunity at the top. Um, partially because it just fits our lifestyles or our goals better, but it is a problem. And so when we talk about diversity in these, you know, uh, very desirable industries or organizations, you can't, especially in like a company like Uber, where the engineers are predominantly Asian and Asian American. So when you look at diversity across the company in a pie chart, they go, see, there's a lot of you guys here. But then when you look at inevitably the org chart at the top, you're like, no, it's not. And, and so, you know, um, and, you know, and also just because somebody looks like us, does that not mean that they're looking out for our interests or, you know, resonates with us either, which is a critically important part as well. But yeah, I, I think it's amazing that you did the banking thing, um, you know, early, earlier this year, um, there was the, um, 
I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but Bulge Bracket came out on, I think, Amazon Prime, which is um, a comedic look at an Asian American woman's first day in banking, um, which is, I had a couple of friends who were in it, and it was really interesting to see um, sort of the portrayal of that, because a lot of the things that you talk about, uh, the sexism and, you know, a lot of the, 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 the guys get away with everything and the women are just sort of, you know, stuck with the bag. It's there. Um, and so it was actually, I, I wasn't a banker. I wasn't consulting, but even as that, like, it was kind of liberating. Like, I know what that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or that final moment where you have to choose like, you know, mom or work, which is, you know, which shouldn't be a binary choice. And then as we talked a little bit right before we started recording, like, um, just the expectation of work, especially at the lower levels through the pandemic, because where else are you going to be except at your laptop at home <laughs> waiting for some not nice demanding person to tell you what to do for the next eight hours of your life? Exactly. So, <laughs> so, so tell me uh, the decision after, you know, a, a successful run through banking um, and at Uber uh, to pursue education again. Why, why business school? What did you want to do ultimately? And um, what led you back home, closer to home, uh, back at Stanford? Yeah. Um, so for some context, I applied to Stanford at GSB as a senior in college. I did one of those two plus two programs. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And so, you know, but then I talked to a bunch of people. They're like, you know, I really would think that you would benefit from more, like basically more time in the workforce because then you'll yeah. have more clarity on what you want. And I've actually found that to be like very, very true. My boyfriend's actually also in business school right now and he's seven years out before going. And so I think he has actually like more clarity than I did. So I was I went to after like, 10 and I have to agree with you. Um, yeah. They got to fix the second two. I, I know why they do the two because yeah. it's works for the banks and works for the consulting firms. Right. And their timeline. Yeah. But when you have 23, 24 year old classmates who've never experienced any hardship because they went from really successful college to really successful first job and then straight there, they lack the context. They're brilliant people, but yeah. they just don't have enough life context to share enough you know, uh, pain stories, which I think makes people clear. Again, I, I recognize that me going after 10 was a little bit on the other side of the bell curve because it's hard to keep up socially uh, <laughs> with, with the, you know, drinking with 25 year olds. But so you went after four. How, how was yes. that? Um, I thought it was a really good time. And I think honestly, having that deferred admission, like in all, like in all honesty, I don't know if I would have been too scared to make the jump to Uber. Like, it, like mm. in hindsight, it's not a scary jump at all, right? Like you're like, they got a billion dollars in the bank. They're not going anywhere. But at the time I was like, you know, a year out of like a year out of school, my group that I joined was industrials. And so I joined industrials because that's where you build the most LBOs. Cause I'm like, I want to be a private mm. Right. And so everybody in my banking class, like most of them, except one person, like all of them are actually still in finance because like a lot of people who join that group have that kind of clarity. And that's what I thought I had to. And so, you know, having that deferred admission gave me like, you know, the willingness to go try something else. Cause I was always scared. I was like, Oh, you know, what if I'm not good at this? Right. And then I realized I was like, actually like you can figure out how to be like, you know, good at this job. That's like pretty similar in a lot of ways, just like people respect your time more and actually respect you as a human, which I loved. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is great. Um, and so, yeah, so basically I decided to go after Uber basically because, the company had changed a lot from when I had first joined to when I left. So 
when I first mm. got to Uber, it was literally like a 10 to 12 person team. It was super fun. We just did whatever we could to make New Jersey a better market. Like, you know, a bunch of us did like incentives, a bunch of other us like tried to get like turn drivers to drive again. And like, keep in mind, this is also like the like nice days of Uber, like 2015, we were the darling of the Silicon Valley. We were like, you know, everybody liked us. All these old ladies would be like, we love Uber. Um, and so everything was just like very happy at that point. Um, and then also going through 2017 kind of showed me a company in turmoil, like where you are like, I am not sure I am like, you know, doing something good for my community. I just feel very like conflicted about a lot of like, you know, maybe some of the decisions we've made, like trying to get drivers to drive more, et cetera. Um, and like, just like kind of feeling like, okay, like there's like these things that like, you know, on the whole, I really still believe in the company, but like, you know, a lot of the criticism is fair. Like, you know, like some of the culture was really toxic. There are some groups where like, you know, it was completely insanely sexist. Like, and so, you know, for me, I was like, okay, well, we are now a big company. We are like, you know, 15,000 people when I, it was like, New York gave me the illusion that we were like still a startup, but we really weren't. And my job function had just completely changed too. I moved over to Eats and my like job was like basically centralizing spend for US and Canada. And so while that was like really good in terms of like a career situation of like working with like all these different people, um, I kind of realized I just didn't really want to be at a 15,000 person company. I just didn't really mm. think that it made sense for me to stay. And so, you know, I was always kind of on the fence of whether or not I would go to school. And I think who I am actually has a lot to do with that decision. Um, I tell my boyfriend, who's um, a white man, I'm like, you know, if I look like you, I don't know if I would have gone because like, you know, I already feel like I like went to Columbia, like went to Goldman, went to Uber and like, you know, I would be able to do whatever I wanted. But like, because I'm me, I felt like I mm. wanted a little bit more. Um, and it has been very strange, actually, because I'm like, I'm the same person in my mind when I went into GSV as when I came out. But people do seem to give me a little bit more respect for some weird reason. And I can't put my finger on exactly why that is. But I was like, you know, <laughs> like, I was like, there's something about it. I was like, okay, you know, I'll take it. And like, you know, I'm still like, I wish I could change the way everything was. But because I'm still in the system, still in this whole situation, like, you know, like, I got to like, play this game. And so I'm going to go get this degree. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that was like, honestly, a large part of why I went. Cause I was like, you know, if I make any like weird decision, like career decision down the line, like it's a lot easier for someone to point at the like GSB and be like, Oh, but like, you know, she must be okay. Like, you know, she went to GSB. Um, like there's so Stanford, much there, Jane, so. There, there, there's so much there to, 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 to unpack. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to start by saying, uh, I too experienced it where I felt like I'm the same fool that you saw me last year but just because like and i know like in-person engagement has, has has suffered this year but um i noticed the difference in the way that friends would introduce me to their friends and it was with a little bit more cred mm -hmm. and i was like well and which, which all goes back to um i think an unfortunate societal expectation that our worth is tied to logos and degrees that somehow you know, I mean, what the hell, like Columbia, Goldman, Uber was not good enough or society had led you to believe that you still needed more. Right. So why not, you know, get a West Coast brand that's also top to Right. Like I understand yeah. and a lot of people understand completely resonate. I bet you a lot of people are shaking their heads like we, we think about our decisions strategically like that. And unfortunately, we don't think about enough or we don't think enough about how does this fit into our life's mission and the legacy that we want to leave? It's, you know, 
which is, I think for you, it's fascinating because after school, we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about what you decided to do after school, right? But like in that moment, I think the reason business school students give to the answer question, why did you go to business school? The ones that they tell you are all crap, right? It's because either I want to make a ton of more money or I want people to think I'm smart or I want a, a different school's degree on mine, which is all great and valid. But I just wish in a way that people would be a little bit more honest, just brutally honest of like, yo, like I sold stuff for 10 years. I was a commissioned salesperson after undergrad for 10 years. The very first time I had actually had a non-incentivized pay structure in a regular salary was post MBA at 34, which is insane, right? But for me, it was a test to see if I could thrive in that structured corporate environment yeah. because I hadn't had that in my life from 21 until 34. The answer is no, I hate it but I learned by doing it. Right. Like, so, yeah. um, but that was a big motivating factor of wanting to go back to graduate school. It was more of proving right to myself. Like, can I get into a top program? I did. Can I get a consulting job? I did. You know, will I like it? No. So like, you know, you test <laughs> and you theorize and then you, you, you pivot. But I think, so I'm curious to hear from you, Jane, like, when did you, did you ever have that? Like, epiphany moment or, you know, how did this realization come that uh, most GSB, I guess GSB is a little bit different, right? Because it is in the Valley. It is a little bit more entrepreneurially focused. Traditional MBAs always, it, it's more of a, um, an employee training grounds where um, you're expected to go into, uh, you know, banking, consulting, um, or marketing. Now product management and tech is becoming cool and, and more desirable, but there's a certain on the menu jobs that you're sort of expected to take and companies come and recruit there. Did you, going in, was that the goal coming out or did you um, exercise the option to go to Stanford because you wanted to try something in the entrepreneurial space, given its location and the relationships that come with being in Palo Alto? Yeah, um, I think for me, my goal, like going in was always actually to start a company, but I always thought I'd start something more in like the software space. Um, I do honestly think that like, because I was able to go to GSB, that gave me really the courage to start something that's really considered out there um, mm. for someone, like, especially at like GSB. I think we're like probably one of the only ones um, who aren't like something that's like super tech enabled or something that has the words AI slash ML in it. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I think we're like pretty much the only ones. And like, it's always funny because people are like, you went to Stanford and now you're doing what? Like <laughs> a what brand? Like, and right. I was like, Braless clothing. <laughs> so it's like always just really like a funny thing there. I'm not going to lie and say I wasn't tempted. You know, like a lot of my friends, like, you know, like during recruiting, like people are landing jobs and you always have that mode of like, what am I doing here? You oh, know, like, yeah. should I be going for like one of these jobs again? Like, <laughs> wait, did I just do this? Like coming out of undergrad? Like, am I going to get caught up in this whole thing again? And it like yeah. actually took my boyfriend talking me back off the ledge to like not do the Amazon Googles, like, you know, of the world. Like, <laughs> and I was like, oh Lord, like, you know, like I came in here with like a pretty strong focus. Even with that, I was still a little bit swayed because of the like, stability like you know all these things that like my immigrant parents like really like obviously treasured like growing up and like it felt like it was i was like trying to unlearn some of it and like not trying to just like you know achieve 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 and like keep climbing of whatever i don't know what ladder we were climbing but like you know to not like get on that ladder like to like basically like stay on the floor and be like okay i want to do what i want to do 
and like if I'm going to test ideas, I'm going to test ideas, but I cannot be like spending my time applying to these jobs that I don't even know if I want. Slash, I like literally left Uber to like not go back to a large tech company, right? And right. so I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And like as I like talked to him, I was like, okay, like you know, I'm like basically being insane and like getting caught up in this. Um, but yeah, like it's my just crazy intent, the, yeah. the amount of social pressure. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Is insane. And now you need to do that for him because he's in school. Um, exactly. <laughs> but wait, and, and I went through this. Well, I, I think you go through it naturally um, at the two-year mark post-grad. Um, you see it again when people start changing jobs and getting promoted. Because I went through it this year when I'm on my own and like trying to build, you know, uh, the media companies and the podcast business. And, and now you're starting to see like, you know, in your mind that you would have never been happy or thriving. But when you get those LinkedIn notifications, like, oh, so-and-so got promoted at your old company and now is that and somebody left to go do, and they're like, oh, that sounds so cool. Um, but other than the, the, I guess, you know, the financial rewards, I would have hated every other part of it. Right. Like, and like, that's also really good to introspect and to continue to, tell yourself because it's so tempting, right? And and you do have, if you wanted to, you could probably get an interview anywhere you want, right? Because you have the background to, you know, to validate that. But so, yeah. So how did you land in the space that you're in? What Was that a first year decision? What did you do during the middle? And then how did you eventually pivot into creating or, you know, launching a braless clothing brand? Yeah. Um, so my first year, actually, I was testing this like software idea that also had the words AI slash ML in it. And I realized I knew nothing about selling software. And so I was like, great, if I'm going to start a software company, I need to go learn that. And so um, that's basically where my internship came from. Um, my co-founder, now co-founder Heather, um, did a summer internship at Rothy's. And so she mm. like, you know, was always supposed to like go back there. And we were like, let's do a thought experiment. Like, let's take this class called Startup Garage and it'll be really fun. And we'll see mm. if we like, you know, maybe some of this other stuff. And um, we applied with the personal CRM idea because um, we were like, oh, yeah, you know, tech, like, it'll be great. Uh, also, I think we could all be better friends, better partners, better sisters, like better whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so we were like, OK, let's apply with that. And then I think we were like in a car somewhere on the way and she goes, so many people are trying to reinvent the bra. Like basically like, you know, all these companies, like they've spent mm. like hundreds of millions of dollars trying to make a better bra. But what if we actually got rid of it all together? And I looked at her, I was like, I don't want to wear a bra. Like, this is a great idea. And she is like, you know, she's actually like a pretty like large chest woman. She's like a triple D and like, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I was like, you know what? Clearly there's like, you know, neither of us want to do this. Like, you know, let's just like do this class. And so we like emailed our professor. We're like, Hey, we don't want to do personal CRM anymore. We want to work on flawless clothing. And everybody was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, basically, like, that is not, like, what we expected. But okay, like, you know, you can't, like, tell someone you can't hard pivot. Um, and so we basically, like, you know, went into this class and, like, started going through it. And then, like, how we started interviewing people as we started, like, kind of, like, running these, like, you know, random marketing tests. Like, we would, like, put up a stock image with, like, some, like, slapped together copy but like get these insane click-through rates and we're like, okay, this concept resonates. And right. so this was going all the way up until like February. And in February, we went to LA, we found a um, designer, we did some fabric sourcing and then the world basically shut down. Um, mm. And so we were like, uh Oh, what do we do now? 
And so, like, for a bunch of reasons, like, basically, like, Heather ended up not going back to Rothy's. And for me, like, it was the depths of, like, you know, like, the worst part of, like, is the world ever going to reopen situation? Um, Like, in, like, I think, like, March, April, and, like, when everybody was, like, still panic buying toilet paper. Um, Basically, I had started conversations with this one startup that I actually really liked, but I was like, no, no, I don't, like, you know, I've always... I was supposed to be the full-time person. Like, this doesn't make sense, like, on the startup now. And it actually really came down to, like, I ended up getting an offer there. And then I had, like, an actual choice to make. Like, it's like, do we work Mm. on Frankly full-time? Or do I, like, kind of go back to this, like, somewhat desire for security? Like, and, like, a good situation, you know? Like, what do I, like, what do I think of that? And, like, I just kept thinking, I was like, I'm never going to forgive myself if I don't throw 100% at this. I'm always going to wonder what would have happened. Like, what would have happened if I didn't just spend, like, you know, if I spent more than 50% of my time on this? Like, because, like, I've been very upfront with the startup. I was like, I actually weirdly, like, I'm not going to let this other, like, side thing go. And so if you guys are not cool with me working on this, like, you guys need to cut me out of the process now. And they're actually very supportive because I think on some level they knew I would never, like, abandon the actual job to, like, right. do the side hustle. But, like, for me, I was, like, I've never been great at, like, not putting 100% in. And, like, that's my personality. I have so much respect for people who can do the side hustle properly. Um, but, like, I've just never been able to. And I kind of know myself in that sense. And so, like, we both were, like, okay, let's go full time. And it was, like, a really, really scary decision because we were, like, we don't know what the world's going to look like. We don't know when we're going to be able to get manufacturing back up. But I, like, turned down this job. I was, like, I'm not looking back. Like, let's do this. Like, what's, like, the opportunity cost? Like. And so, yeah, so that's kind of how we ended up, like, actually starting the company, incorporating, like, doing all that stuff in, like, actually, like, the April, May time, uh, which Mm. is, like, the time that we were, like, probably the most confused about what the world was, like, what was going to happen. Yeah. Tell me more about the product and sort of the, the bigger why of taking everything you've done, um, obviously opportunity cost or, you know, other options in 2020, um, directly or indirectly affected it. But like, why, why was this the problem other than personal experience with, with you and Heather saying, you know, this is something that we feel is, you know, what, what's the bigger goal other than trying to create a marketplace to make some money? Yeah, I think for us, like, so for me, when I think about like a lot of like my career and things I've cared about, it's always been like about women and empowering women. Um, and so, you know, we had so many issues with like, the fashion industry as a whole, like in general, just like designing for a very specific person that technically doesn't even really exist. Like we were like, because we're fighting so hard, this is why this doesn't exist. And us rolling a boulder uphill, like we felt like we were fighting for something we really believed in, in terms of like trying to create clothing that fit a like larger range of body types and making the bralas trend more inclusive um, for more cup sizes. And so like, you know, that inclusivity and like empowering women, like those are the two things that are like really core to like who Heather and I are. Um, and I think in terms of like our like general like personal goals of like, you know, why this at some level, um, you know, for us, we're like the solution hasn't existed. And like, there's a bunch of dudes like running clothing companies, like, you know, we want to be the women who like actually start something and like design this thing for women and like, you know, hopefully have it be like an amazing product. And people are like, I always want to wear this. I don't want to wear anything else in my closet and like mm. really create that product experience that people, um, I feel like somewhat lack in a lot of like traditional fashion. And I think for us, the other thing is also um, pre-orders is actually a big part of our strategy. And like, this is still like to be tested to see how it works, but we just are trying to build a company that we're really proud of. And like, we eventually want to be a B Corp, 
but we also like mm. want to be a really sustainable company. And so like pre-orders is a large part of this because then we don't make a bunch of colors sizes that like people don't want and like end up somewhere in a landfill. Um, and so we just want to like kind of slow down like fashion in general and like just be really thoughtful about how we're going about this um, and how we think about clothes. And so, you know, there's all these like, you know, multifaceted reasons of like, why this? But I think in the end also, there's also like, you know, why do we specifically want to do this? It's like to build a workplace we're proud of, um, to build a brand that we're really proud of and feel good about. Um, and so there's like, you know, personal aspects to a lot of that as well. What makes you guys, you guys aren't the first to try braless clothing. I, I don't know that for a fact, but it, it seems, or are you? And and what what, what yeah. makes... <laughs> What what makes frankly, you know, inimitable, which is a, a nice business school word. What 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 what's the what what makes it unique? Yeah, um, I think a lot of the broadest things on the market today are basics. Like it's basically like a tank top, um, a camisole, like basically something that like you know, like you have in your closet. Maybe you layer it with something. Um, for us, we really wanted to build things that were hard to wear with a bra, and people are excited to buy. Um, and so we actually kind of stayed away from doing like the tank camisole. And so that's why like our first pieces in the collection that we did for Kickstarter and also like what's going to be on the site in like March, um, is going to be like, you know, dresses with low backs, like, you know, bodysuits, like that kind of thing. And also a couple other things that are probably just generally annoying to wear with a bra. Um, and so I think like our approach is like for that is pretty different. I think the way that we also do the support is pretty different also so a lot of the things we've seen on the market just has like that elastic band that goes under the chest um and so there's always like this like piece of elastic that doesn't really work for me because i don't have enough like you know chest to push it out from like just like feeling like it's like kind of strangling me but then like on some level my co-founder it doesn't work for her because her chest is too big and the elastic band cuts her in the middle of the chest and so the mechanism by which a lot of them do it actually doesn't work for like, you know, it works for a pretty narrow range of people is like what we've seen. Um, and so for us, like what we're really trying to do is like, you know, it's not rocket science, but we're trying to combine like things that people have already done. For example, things like smocking, like, you know, making the back adjustable so that like it functions kind of as a band. And then like basically like with the front, like just like put like putting a full panel on the front, like for a nipple cover, you know, like that kind of thing. And so we're trying to like, we've been testing different things and we'll see which one actually like gets good feedback from Kickstarter people. And like, maybe we'll go more down that path. Um, but we're trying to do something pretty different in terms of like the way we structure support, but also the pieces that we make. Awesome. I obviously am not an expert by any means in braless clothing, but what I do have an interest in is marketing, branding, all the things that make sort of the, the storytelling part of a brand really fun. And you guys have been really excellent at it. Um, particularly through the early parts um, with uh, great success on the, your traditional platforms, Facebook and Instagram. But what a particular note is on TikTok where you're now north of 65,000 followers. What about the messaging that you are sharing is resonating with um, particularly that younger audience? Yeah, I think the younger audience, they really like the sustainability aspect to it. I think TikTok's a really cool platform because I feel like Instagram is very polished. Like everything has to be very aesthetically like fitting in with your grid and like all these things and TikTok, you can kind of more be yourself. Um, and so I think that aspect of it probably resonates a good amount with those users in terms of like, we're just like a little bit less filtered on there. Like, you know, we want to just like, you know, give people more behind the scene looks. Um, and so like, that's kind of how we think about that. And like, I think that's something that we really like. Um, 
but yeah, I think the sustainability aspect, I think the flawlessness um, that really resonates. And then also the styles people put out there like, oh, that's really cute um, because it's like basically not like a tank or a camisole. So people are really drawn to that. Um, but yeah, I don't like, you know, I think that's something that like, you know, it's, it's fun that we're like talking so early because I feel like it's still something that we're like perfectly figuring out. I think the thing that we do know is that sustainability is a tenant of ours, female empowerment is a tenant of ours. Um, and just like, you know, those are the two things that we like, Mat no matters to us and I think I would guess resonates with people but like I think that's like still yet to be seen yeah that's cool what do you want your legacy to be not just through frankly but after you, you you've done a lot already and then you're just getting started um yeah. what's the impact you want to leave behind I think in general for me um I think like this has always been something that I've like kind of thought about in terms of like if I'm thinking about the workplace like you know, I don't have to be like literally the most successful person ever. I think like you said, like kind of just existing in some spaces where there are other Asian Americans or other women is really important. And so, you know, like on some level, sometimes I'm like, wow, my like, you know, legacy and like goal is so lame is literally to exist. Like, and so like, I'm like, oh man, like got to think about that a little bit. But I do think like, you know, being a mentor, like trying to be a role model and like, you know, like literally just being in these spaces actually makes a difference. It does make a difference. I've seen like in terms of like, what people say, like how people act and like, you know, not even just about Asian Americans, like being a minority in a room full of like, you know, white men, like actually has helped a lot in terms of like what they're like not going to say about black people then, what they're not going to say about Latinos or Latinos. Like, you know, I think a lot of that like presence and like existing, it has actually just like, it, it's helped me notice like what an impact it actually has. And that like, you know, it is important for me to like continue to try like being in these circles um, and like, you know, trying to like speak up like what I think is like problematic or like has issues. Talk to our listeners who maybe um, are women, identify as women or have always felt their belonging in a startup or a traditional place has not always been welcome or that they lack the self-belief or the self-confidence that they do. You, you've existed in some pretty badass places um, and have thrived at it. And now you are going down the often glorified um, yet definitely challenging road of trying to build something on your own, which isn't on your own because you need partners, you need investors, you need, you know, uh, a team. Share some challenges and some insights and some messages of, you know, hope and uh, inspiration to somebody who wants to do what you've done. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm a numbers person and I've always believed in numbers and been like, okay, like if the numbers show that this works, it works. Um, I think if you have a hunch, like you should still follow it because like, I think there's a lot of like pushback in general. Like, you know, we get a lot of questions about like, you know, how's your product different or like, you know, even about like me. Um, but like, if you can prove it and like, you know, you shouldn't have to, but if you can prove it, like even like the biggest naysayers, a lot of times will be like, okay, fine. I'm on board. I can see why this is a thing. And like, I can see like, you know, you getting results. I can see you doing X, Y, Z. I think something that I've had to learn over time. And like, I think like a lot of like, my male colleagues do a lot better is like when you do have the opportunity, like you do need to say something like, you know, I know like, you know, a lot of like the women, the minorities have to be like super capable to get the same jobs. And so you're probably doing great things. It's just like, you do need to like step out of your comfort zone and say something about it. And like, unfortunately, like it's super uncomfortable for me too. But like, even in any job, like you kind of like got to go up there and be like, well, you know, these are my results. Like, this is what I did. Like, you know, like, is there a raise? Is there a promotion? Like, what are the next steps I need to do to like get to the like X Y Z? 
Um, and so, yeah, I think it's the same thing for like any job or like even for us, you know, like as a company, I was like, I still feel like on some level, I'm like, wow, it doesn't feel like we've done very much. But like, you know, I think like a lot of other people would take like what we've done and like really like market it and talk about it a certain way. And I think that's something that I also need to get more comfortable with doing and like making those asks and like making those pitches and like really like talking about myself, like is like something that um, doesn't come naturally. And I think like, you know, all of us could work on um, and like do more of. And I think with every woman like you, every big sister like you that does it, um, and more importantly, much more so than doing it, then shares her story, um, whether it's through a podcast or just living and, and sharing your own experiences, the ripple imp impact of that is unmeasurable because somebody will see you, hear you, observe you, um, and then believe that they can too, because that's how a lot of us get inspired. We think we, we, we put inspiration itself on a pedestal and say, we must do these grandiose grandiose acts of, you know, helping or give a tear jerking speech on Oprah to really impact somebody's life. Yet it's the everyday mundane, just sharing the challenges, whether it's on social media or otherwise, that will actually get somebody to really believe and, and to take that first step into, hey, like, I don't need to be validated by all these things. I can do what I want. And if I want to fix a problem, I can do it too. Or know that people like you can do what they're doing now and then pivot away and to do something completely different, which I think is, you know, especially now as, as a certain, as uncertain as things may seem, it's really hard for young folks to think about what's next. And even though it's not linear, right? Like you've sort of made full circle and come back to NorCal. Like you left, you know, 10 years ago. There's no way that 10 years ago, Jane would have predicted that you're back home in Northern California starting a company because when you look at your resume from a very cynical traditionalist view, it doesn't compute. Right. You don't add those things up and, and which is great because let's stop doing that and, and let's stop using that as the measuring stick by which we judge all 7 billion people in the world to say, if you don't have these resumes and you're not worthy to join my organization, to come on uh, a platform to share your story or anything, because why should that matter? Right. Um, I'd argue that it's quite the contrary, that if your sole purpose in life is efficiency and profit maximization, that you're actually, you may not be helping people the way that you might be right. By providing jobs here in the States to produce your clothes in an ethical way and to empower people who are then going to get, you know, buy your products and, you know, have the night of their life or fix a problem that was the mental block for them to do something great. And so that's why I, you know, that's why I think what you're doing is amazing because it's actually never about the product. This is features and benefits, right? Like the feature is a very comfortable braless dress. The benefit is unbounded, unlimited amounts of potential and what that could mean for somebody because it will change the way they feel and which will change the way she or they may feel about themselves and then go kick ass and do crazy stuff. And, and that's why I think what you're doing is amazing. The, the business part, the, the technical stuff that we talked about, like, of course that's cool. Right. And like 
you've you've built tribes, right? Like all those places, the four major organizations that you belong to, they have great alumni organizations. They back you, they support you, and those things will always be there. But now you're putting all that to a good use where you're really focusing on an area. You mentioned it briefly, like, you know, every woman's product up until very recently was created, designed, engineered, and sold by a bunch of old white dudes sitting in boardrooms that didn't have the lived in experience of an end user consumer. Right. And so why not change the entire script? Right. And it's really exciting to see not just in 2020, but just this movement of um, Asian American folks who have really decided to chart our own path and to say, Hey, I want to do something that makes me happy and, and, and fix a problem that I think needs fixing. You know, uh, Tanya, who's been on the show, we talked about her before we jumped yeah. on, you know, her, her and Wesley are building, you know, dress shirts, not specifically made for Asian American dudes, but we have different body types. And that's a market that the big box stores, mainly, you know, general market serving, don't think we're big enough of a market. Well, we're 60% of the world. So I'd argue otherwise, but we don't get the light of day, right? Right. You know, I, I have another friend who's up in the in the valley, she makes she, she's a, a technical co-founder of a company called Lioness. And they make a smart vibrator, which is insane. So try explaining that to your Korean American mom that you went to Cal to study <laughs> engineering and now you make that for a living. Like, that's and amazing. it's empowering, right? Yeah, because these, awesome. these topics are supposed to be quote unquote taboo, but who cares? And I think it's really empowering because it's not just the action, it's the context in which the action is happening. So I'm so excited, Jane. Um, I, I'm, I'm excited to have spoken to you at, at this stage because whether it is frankly or whether it is the next next thing that I think you are going to continue to build, because similar to the fact that nobody really expects you to have stayed at Goldman for 20 years, it's unrealistic for people to look at founders and saying like, that's the company you're going to grow for 20 years. Like we pivot, life happens. Yeah. But the mindset and the lessons learned will always continue to stay. What, what's been... What's been the greatest lesson that you learned this year so far? Um, in terms of the company or just overall? Just in life. Yeah, I think in life, you know, I'm a very self-critical person. And I think this year has really forced me to be like, I am doing okay. And like today I have done enough and I can like stop thinking about this. Because the thing about founding for me is like, you know, I'm the type of person who sits up at 4 a.m. and it's like, oh my God, we didn't do this. And like, you know, being able to like, write it down and go back to sleep has been something that I've like had to train myself to do because like w once upon a time I might've just gotten up and like went and did that thing. And so like this year I think has just been really tough for everybody in like a lot of different ways. But I think, you know, for me it's just like generally like not being so critical and like allowing myself space to not think about this business and like knowing that like it'll make me better and that we're not going to fail because I didn't do that thing at 4am. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for me because I was like, you know, I've been trying to train myself like we've been all like I feel like both of us have been in such like go, go, go environments our entire lives. Like, you know, if I'm going to be working on this for the next eight to 10 years, I can't be acting like this. I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like really allowing myself to take that step back and being like, it's OK, like today is OK. And I can answer that later um, has probably been. the biggest. And then what are your. What, share with us some books or resources that have made the biggest impact in the way you see the world. Um, I think, well, generally speaking, when I think about like one book, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, uh, Between the World and Me has been one of my favorite books. Um, and let's see, what else have I read recently that I thought was really good? 
Um, I think Evicted, Matthew Desmond, is very mm. good. Um, it's just talking about, like, you know, I think, like, for me, I always like reading things that are, like, outside of maybe business and, like, maybe not fiction, because I would like to learn about, like, things that are not, like, things that I directly experience, but definitely, like, impact the world and, like, policy and everything around us. Um, and, like, I'd like to understand how other people go through the world, because I know that for me, like, you know, as an Asian American woman, I experience the world a certain way. Um, and so, like, I think, you know, just generally speaking, like, the last, like, couple of years has been, like, that continued journey for me to try and better understand, like, everybody else's perspectives and understand, like, why people behave the way they do, why do communities feel the way they do about certain issues, um, and just, like, think about that. I think it's amazing because life is, it, it's, it's a lifelong ed education cycle that we always continue to learn. And um, as I, I found the answers or the books in your answers really insightful because those are things that we don't get taught in school yet. We consider them life's greatest lessons, right? So this has been amazing. I, I, I learned a lot. It's been really cool uh, to see the brand grow the last couple of months uh, that we've been connected and really excited for what's to come in, in 2021 um, and really making the best of sort of this situation that we are, we are all in. And again, I think it's not just you, but a lot of people just have really had the chance to um, repurpose and to rethink, you know, is going somewhere, working 80 hours a week, you know, for, for that, like the best use of my gifts to make an impact in the world. Um, and so want to ask you to help us finish out the show in the way that we always do and share any messages of insight or per inspiration or perspective that you want to share and finish the letter, dear Asian Americans. Your experiences matter. Um, they make you who you are. And even if they feel really cringeworthy right now, um, things that embarrass you about your family, your culture, et cetera, um, down the line, you'll be proud and you'll be happy that you experienced a lot of them. Thanks, Jane. I, I think there's so many nuggets of wisdom, both tangible and intangible that you've shared with us today. And yeah, I, if, if people have listened to the show for a while, they understand my story. Like I am with you that I think we need to encourage. And, and again, if going traditional success is what makes you really happy, go for it, right? Get those degrees, get those jobs, make partner, do something with your life that makes you happy and fulfilled. But I do think that the, there's more of us who were never meant to fit in those puzzle pieces but we were always told that we had to. So we sacrificed our authenticity. We changed the way we talk and the way we exist to give our best shot to see if we could fit into that success model that was told to us by everybody else but us, whether that's society, school, family, um, all the things. And so it's really always inspiring and exciting to see other people who have you know, in a way, check some of those boxes and then have decided to pursue something else. Um, and we see also plenty of examples of people who've done the entrepreneurship thing and that they may go back to traditional employment if that makes more sense for them. Because you also learn so much and you grow and there's skills that you develop. So excited for what's to come for Frankly and excited to see what's uh, to come for, for Jane as well. Best of luck. I think it's going to be an exciting uh, time in our lives to really empower other people. And you're doing that through your brand and the messaging and, and the, the products that you're creating. And, and we're trying to do that here as well by sharing yours and everybody else's um, unique and yet amazing 
amazingly resonant uh, Asian American stories here. So thanks again for making time for us and best of luck. We're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to you and probably Merry Christmas to everybody else if you're listening um, <laughs> in, in a couple of weeks. So thanks again, Jane, for coming. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, great story. Um, you know, personally, and I know, know I mentioned it during the interview, uh, brings me a lot of joy when um, people go to business school and then end up doing something else that they're not, quote unquote, supposed to do or that people expect of them to do. And so best of luck to Jane and her partners as they build, frankly, your apparel into what I know that it can be. Um, and it is more than a clothing company. It's more than a lifestyle brand. It is really uh, the embodiment of empowerment and the embodiment of what can be uh, to create products for women by women um, in an area that um, for so long has not been really addressed properly and with the proper context. So thank you to Jane for jumping us jumping on this show. Um, if you found that show resonant and if you found that show fun, if you know of anybody else in your life that should listen to Jane's story, please share the episode with them. Um, you can tag us at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram and on Facebook and on LinkedIn and tag at Frankly Apparel to make sure that Jane and her team know about it as well. Hit us up on social media or send us a note. We can be reached at hello at DearAsianAmericans.com and I'll respond to all of your emails. As we said at the top of the show, we are just a few weeks away and um, today's a deadline actually to submit your nominations for the Asian Podcast Award. So I hope you'll join us and in celebrating the amazing voices um, that is the industry and the growing community of Asian podcasters globally. It's an honor for me uh, to have founded the Asian Podcast Network and a joy to put in the work to make sure that we are celebrating our own shows and that we are celebrating the amazing people that are putting in so much work to make this uh, industry grow. So again, head over to AsianPodcastAwards.com and head over to DearAsianAmericans.com to make sure that you are signing up for the newsletters and to make sure that you are uh, getting everything that we are creating for you. Thanks again so much. Uh, hope you're staying safe primarily. Hope you're staying well and hope you're staying happy. And just a few days, or just a few weeks from Christmas. And tomorrow's my son's birthday. So I'm excited for that. And thanks for listening. I'll see you next week here on Dear Asian Americans. <laughs>